Hello and welcome to Classical Music Now, the podcast by No Dice Collective. I am your host, Joe Chesterman-March, and today we're talking to Joe Chung of the Olympias Music Foundation. Olympias Music Foundation is an award-winning music charity based in Manchester, championing diverse team music from violin lessons for children on free school meals to community choirs for vulnerable BAME women and school children. They're giving everyone an opportunity to participate in music, whatever their background. The charity's really been going from strength to strength and they're recently expanding beyond the scope of schools to their own community hub in Longsight in Manchester where they're based. Today I talked to Joe about the completely unregulated nature of teaching music in schools, uh, taking music education from school to the community and what that really means in practice to be doing that properly and also Olympias' huge Making Manchester project that they did with all sorts of collaborators and their plans for next year. Now, as someone who teaches music myself, this is quite an interesting conversation, and it was great to hear Joe's opinion outside of my own music service background. So without further ado, here is Joe of the Olympias Music Foundation. I wondered if we could just start with uh, how the Olympias Music Foundation got started and what the initial inspiration was. Um, Okay, so uh, the OMF was founded in 2015. Um, I think it was my second year in Manchester, and so um, I'd moved here to do a master's at the RNCM. I lived in Russian, and um, I mean, to be honest, there wasn't really a plan. We hadn't sort of decided, oh, let's start a charity, let's do this, we'll have some, you know, let's write a strategy paper, it was nothing like that. Um, I wanted to book some uh, event space for my piano pupils to do a concert, and didn't have any money because I was a student. So uh, I came to a, a deal with the priest of the church. Um, I'm not religious or anything, but um, I said that I am um, in exchange for using the church space that um, I would do some workshops at the local schools. So the church was attached to two local schools. The church was called St. John Chrysostom's and the two schools were St. John's and St. Chrysostom's. Um, so I did that really nice had some RNCM students come in some mates um, and we did some assemblies and um, and then we came in again and again um, and what really struck me was that uh, it was a bit of a short-term solution um, a lot of the kids were asking you know oh how how can I do what you do can mm. I, you know, how, how can I get involved and I didn't really have an answer for them um, and there wasn't really anything I could signpost them to um, they weren't teaching music in the schools or in any lessons offered. I mean, they certainly couldn't have paid for pri- afford to pay for private lessons. So um, we had a chat with the head teacher and there was some pupil premium left over. So um, when you're, I mean, obviously in, a, in an area like Rushholm in Manchester, um, you're looking at quite a lot of urban deprivation, quite a lot of kids on free school meals and things. And when you have a lot of kids um on that kind of school provision, there's there's usually a bit of money from the government to, to pay for them to have extra things to help them out. And when you've got a lot of them, you've got quite a lot of money. Um, so um, we started doing music lessons in the schools for a small number of kids and, and that grew and grew and we stayed there for three or four years at those two schools and then another school in Rushholm called Healed Place. Yeah, it's quite, it's quite funny because um, I used to live on Platte Lane Mm. And uh, Georgia, who manages No Dice, she used to work as a TA at St. John's. Oh, really? I, th- I think before you started, but yeah. 
So like Hill Place was like we were like right in the middle of all those different primary yeah. schools. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, St John's and St Chrysostom's are in Longsight and Ardwick, and Hill Place is uh, obviously on Hill Place, just off the Curry Mile. So you know, you have quite a sort of a nice little triangle um, of, of people living in that community, um, quite diverse sort of groups of families and things. So yeah, no, it was good. Um, I mean, since then we 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 work in different schools now and we kind of have expanded our provision a little bit. So we work with children and with adults now. Um, and when you were first approaching the schools, I guess you had the the kind of connection of uh, going through the priest at the church at St. Cross's Christmas. Chris, 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 Chris. <laughs> so I still can't pronounce it. I still can't pronounce it. <laughs> um, but was there, because I know even... Um, even when you're offering something for free, it can actually be quite hard to find time at a school. I remember I was doing some workshops for contact. Uh, I wasn't doing that, but I was helping to organize it. And it was, you know, it's just like free workshop from contact theatre. And I couldn't get any schools to sign up for it <laughs> just because they were busy or they had other things on. But that wasn't an issue for you. Uh, no, it's, it's still an issue for us. I mean, right. <laughs> you know, even now, I mean, so... As I said, we've been going for six years and we've kind of changed our model. So for the first three years, we offered the lessons and the schools paid us. So it was very much a kind of customer service agreement type situation. And then mm. it was since then, in the last three years, we've been operating. We've changed our model so that we pay for everything. Um, and it's still hard, <laughs> even yeah. when it's free. Um, and I think that's absolutely right about, I think the administrative workload and teachers are very overstretched and they obviously don't get paid for things like marking or planning time. And it's just another thing to do, isn't it? it, it you know, in addition to meeting targets and everything's very quantitative now. So if they can't mm. see that your workshop from contact theatre is going to improve their students' SATs grades in any way, then a lot of them will say no. I mean, a lot, a lot of them are very progressive and foresighted, but it, it is really difficult for schools. I mean, I, I don't envy them. They do a fantastic job, um, but it's very, very hard offering provision through schools. Mm, yeah. Do you do you kind of approach it in that way then when you're talking to the schools saying, oh, it improves, uh, you know, like this social skill and their ability to, you know, there's all these stats about people who do music being better at pretty much everything and <laughs> if you if you look hard enough. <laughs> I mean, quite honestly, I, I don't really care. <laughs> Yeah, I, well, I, I, I. Couldn't, I really couldn't <laughs> care less if they do better in their exams and things because I think there's a, uh, you know, the things that we notice from, I mean, we're not interested in sort of having kids who go on to be the next Nicola Benedetti or, I don't know, scoring two marks higher in their sets grade. I just feel it's totally irrelevant. I mean, what you end up with is you have kids who, kids who do music, are they're less afraid um they they have a passport to a completely different world outside of um i don't mean that in in a terribly abstract way either i i, I mean they literally have a passport to go to a concert to chets or the bridgewater or the anthony burgess center and to a composer from a different country that they may not have heard of or a name that they wouldn't normally hear in their house and um access to information that they wouldn't have had otherwise I, so i feel that all of that is far more important to me and i think also to the families as well and to the kids themselves than whether or not it makes them any better at maths or english and you know and quite frankly one of the things which is really challenging i think um around justifications for music education and all of this sort of quantitative um impact measurement is that it actually doesn't really help and i don't know if you know about ecam um in new no. new um, so every child a musician i think oh, they yeah rings a bell yeah yeah so there are three 
quite big music education programs running in the UK at the moment. So there's In Harmony, which is in Liverpool and Leeds, and they're both really great. Um, Every Child a Musician, which used to run a new one, and then Sustainer Scotland, and there are some, uh, you know, a couple of other ones as well. So uh, the Music and Secondary Schools Trust, which is run by the, the Lloyd Webber Foundation, um, and um, one of the problems I feel that all of them are running into, and ECAM maybe ran into first, was that they set as one of their goals for the programme that all of the children would do better in their academic studies as a result of doing music. And after, I, I can't remember how long it was, five years of doing the programme, they didn't. Right, okay. So, so they, didn't meet their, they didn't meet their evaluation goal and they got shut down. Right, right, because that I was think, one of their targets for their funding. Exactly, and because they didn't manage to show um, a link between those two things. I think psychologists have known this for quite a long time anyway. Um, so my, my training is, is a music psychologist. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of research around that and looking at whether or not um, music has a strong impact on children's academic grades. I mean, it's a very hard thing to measure anyway, because there are so many different factors which could be playing into that, mm. um, you, you know, beyond just doing music. So unless that's a really, really big part of that child's life, you know, aside from say their finances or where they live or what school they go to or all the other things they might be doing, you know, it might be the music, but it might be tennis lessons. Um, you know, it's very hard to know um, what what's going on there, but there doesn't seem to be a link anyway. So I think increasingly it's it's not a tenable position. Yeah, yeah, no, I didn't realise that, yeah. And so was that what you studied at the RNCM then, child psychology and music? Well, I was there for, I mean, I've, I've been at the RNCM for as long as I've been in Manchester, which is six years, which is as long as I've been running the OMF. Actually, right. I've, you know, I've been, actually, I've been in Manchester for about six and a half years now. And um, Are you still there now? Strictly speaking, I mean, oh, right. okay. I submitted my PhD in October 2020, I had my Viva in January and I'm still waiting for it to be marked. So uh, I have, I have, I've done everything that's been asked of me, but it's, uh, you know, COVID and stuff. Mm. But I mean, I originally went there to study piano um, and then uh, I did that for three years. I did a master's and two year master's and then a PG dip. And then I moved to the research department. Okay. So, so that's my background. And my PhD was in music education and music psychology. Mm. Yeah. And did that have a, uh, was that linked to what you were actually doing? in real life in person was that where that came from i think so i mean if i'm really really honest i know it's very sensible to say this on a podcast um <laughs> but uh i think you have a very saturated market um you know as musicians it's very hard to find a job it's very hard to know what you're doing i mean you know you've got that and then you've got the fact that in your mid-20s i mean what the hell are you supposed to be doing <laughs> of yourself um and i just needed a bit more time uh, mm. after finishing, you know, I did my degree and I went and did piano for three years. And at the end of that, I was, wasn't quite sure that that was what I wanted to do. So I sort of bought myself a bit more time by doing a research degree, quite a long one. I mean, I think that's why most people do a PhD, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Kill a bit of time, yeah, yeah. you know, and hope at the end of the three years you, you have an answer. I mean, I was interested anyway, because, um, I, I was doing a lot of teaching at the time. Um, I've worked with kids for a long, long time now. Um, I mean, even before I, I, I went to university, I was teaching. So I've always, I've always liked working with kids. And my PhD was on um, specifically on something called metacognition, um, okay. which is, uh, I suppose, the sort of shorthand way of defining that is thinking about thinking. So okay. how do you regulate your thinking? What do you know about your thinking? And then how can you control it? So I mean, the example I always use is 
like if you're driving your car and you stall it um i mean the i suppose the the metacognitive thing which happens there is asking yourself oh why did i stall was it this was it this was it this was it this and then the the sort of control aspect of that is being able to change your thinking so that you don't do it again um mm. and so my my uh, phd was on how children develop that kind of metacognitive ability um and specifically how parents can um, develop that ability in children because one of the things which is really interesting about sort of links between music and metacognition and and sort of academic grades is that music may not improve your academic grades but music will definitely improve your metacognition so maybe that's a way around so maybe that's a workaround and actually in a lot of cases very metacognitive children exceed um sort of children who are maybe academically ahead of them all right to begin with by using metacognitive techniques so, so so that was what i was interested in and 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 looking at if there were things that parents from disadvantaged backgrounds could do to, to kind of level the playing field basically um mm. so i mean it was related i mean you know doing some kind of metacognitive intervention at the omf would be like dream come true but it would you know would take a lot of work and it's, it's quite quite a big undertaking me for the time we, we you know we, we are not doing anything that's structured um in, in the way we teach we're just sort of going into schools and hoping that they can sort of stay with us for half an hour long yeah. enough that they might <laughs> play something at the christmas concert you know um, that's so true isn't it like you kind of you, you get like teacher training or kind of broad stuff and then like you get that contrast with actually like being in there and being like well what, what do you mean you skipped the end of school well, don't tell me that like <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean actually on the contrary i think that for musicians we're it, it, music teaching is extremely unregulated i don't think oh, i've yeah, never had any yeah. teacher training i've had loads of higher education uh teacher training i i you know in order to even be a you know graduate teaching assistant you needed to have done um like a associate fellowship to to be able to even start doing that but you know go ahead you know first year undergraduate musician and sit with a six-year-old every week for you know half a decade and try and get them through their grades i mean it, it, it's a strange thing actually because i think that a lot of people we can't really decide beyond you know, the abrsm or say trinity what it is to be a good musician i mean i'm i'm still not entirely sure what what it is i'm training children to do what are the key skills that they need especially when you start looking at kind of music and other styles <laughs> and if they're not reading i mean then you're you're that's i mean it's it's a completely open um landscape then isn't it um yeah i don't know i mean is is um like is, is kind of self-learning skills is that part of metacognition being able to hear yourself and think oh i need to do that again but like focus on this particular bit is that part of that oh yeah definitely so metacognition is all about structuring your own learning mm. um it's about being able to identify mistakes or to identify as well kind of it's about emotional awareness as well like why am i feeling frustrated it's about being able to sort of stop yourself repeating something 10 times in a row about it getting getting any better and then sort of diagnose what it is that's really hindering you from playing that phrase from start to finish um so yeah i mean that i mean that's definitely part of it but because to me that's what music teaching is i mm. think when i've got like my piano pupils i'm trying to distill that idea of well we're going to do it again but we're going to do it slower because we heard that the last time we did it we didn't have time to feel where we were going and to tr kind of to develop like an awareness of what you're doing subconsciously mm. um and that kind of autopilot mode that is mm -hmm. reading music but it doesn't it feels like you're doing it with like your brain 
but you're kind of just doing it with your fingers. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think there's definitely a kind of element of trying to to make everything automatic. I think the thing is with children too, I mean, especially when you're working with really young children, is that you don't have the benefit of really high level verbal skills. Mm. So a lot of what needs to be done needs to be done unconsciously, or you need to be facilitating them to learn it without them having, you, you basically can't have a conversation about metacognition with a young child, um, <laughs> but you can help them to be metacognitive. Mm. Um, if that makes sense, you can help them to be aware of themselves and to be able to control what they're doing. But you probably can't say, okay, <laughs> let's have a little talk about emotional regulation. <laughs> you know, what were you, you know, what, what were you experiencing at that moment? You know, how can you, how could you regulate your feelings better when you get to that, that section? You can't do that. So, mm. and I think that is, you know, if, again, just to go back to this point, you know, what do you do when you've got somebody who's not reading music? I mean, that's a perfectly legitimate way to to learn isn't it what do you do when you're in a group of people what do you do when actually that child's not learning very much music at all and maybe the the lesson for them is more about confidence building and I think you know it's it's difficult when you you go to a music college or if you come for university and you you have a very particular kind of music training and so you try and replicate that but when you're working with people who don't come from that kind of background haven't had that level of education or maybe coming at it either older um, you know, secondary school kids who've never had any musical background or whatever, it just, and it just doesn't fit their needs. There is a danger, I think, of kind of labeling children as not being musical or not being able to learn or not being metacognitive, not being, being tone deaf, whatever, because you're not adapting to what it is they want. I mean, I'll give you an example. So some of the kids that we work with um, during COVID, we, we worked with them one-to-one over Zoom. Um, and now that we're back in school, we just assume that they want to go back to one-to-one because they missed so many lessons. We thought, well, actually, we've got the funding to be able to offer this one-to-one. You know, this is fantastic. This is what we've always wanted to do is to give one-to-one lessons. And now mm. that there's not like a money hindrance, let's do that. And the kids actually said to us, we don't want to do it one-to-one. <laughs> I want to do it in groups. I, I play better when I, I'm in a group with my friends. And also these kids are in other classes and I, I don't normally get to see them. And now that they're leaving... Um, primary school and secondary school again it's this question of would you like to have it one-to-one your provision one-to-one or would you like to be in groups and they're like no no we want to be in groups but some of them want to be one-to-one um and so it's about kind of adapting uh you know to different children and you know to get the best the best possible outcome I mean that's that's completely obvious stuff isn't it I'm not saying anything new there but I think we don't always manage to apply it yeah, well, is that something you're actually able to do then? You're able to say, well, this kid wants a one-to-one, so they get one-to-one, these want these want a group. Because usually it's just the school offers this provision because otherwise there's just so much administrative overhead if you have individual needs and you are serving the individual needs. Well, this is one of the things that we're changing this year. I mean, in the past we, we ran like any other music charity or music service and that we had a structure. You had to be in a certain year. You had to learn a particular instrument. I mean, we only offer violin lessons at the moment, mm. only. And um, you had to be at one of our partner schools. And now we don't do that. Next year we're not doing that. We're not working with schools anymore. Um, okay. We're offering everything in the community. We're offering everything um basically directly with no sort of middle uh middleman and what we're trying to do is to build up a provision which responds to what people actually want or need so children have as much direction as they can about what they're going to do and and the way we're doing that is we're having we have two choirs a children's choir and then a youth choir so primary and secondary choir and um a lot of those children in those choirs have been with us for 
four or five years now, which is why we now have a secondary choir. This is due to this year, because all the ones who were, you know, in year three, four years ago are now in secondary school and could really do with not being with all the people in year <laughs> three. Um, I take primary and secondary school choirs and they're very different styles. They're very like, I different. Oh my God. Material. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and also it's just, it's deeply uncool <laughs> yeah. to be in secondary school and be made to be with like the year fives in your old primary. It's, you know, it's, we, it was like really urgent that we needed to do that. Although, I mean, to be fair, the kids, you know, are not, are not in the groups that we work with are so nice to each other and so kind to one another, but I don't think it really matters too much. But the idea for us is that we would select children from those choirs and those choirs would be open to any children who wanted to come. And what uh, that we would select the children kind of on the basis of uh, potential, but also on the basis of means. So any child who was uh, on free school meals or on asylum support um, or was a refugee then could have the lessons for free. And, um, and we would work out what they wanted to do. Would they want to have lessons in their homes? Would they want to have them at the center? Would they want to have them in a group? And then just be really, really reactive and respond to the situation as it evolved um, and develop our provision that way. So, so that's kind of what we're doing in the future. And I think a lot of that comes from, as I said, I, th I feel like we've tried it twice now in schools. One model where the schools paid, one where we paid. And even though the second model still worked, it didn't really work. And one of the big barriers right. for me around inclusivity was that we couldn't respond to anybody that wasn't in one of our partner schools. And it takes such a long time to build a partnership that you're saying a lot of no's to people who could really benefit from that. Um, and so we want to be a bit more flexible and, and also sort of get rid of the kind of bureaucracy and admin of having to go through a school. Yeah, getting time in the building and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah and rooms and stuff. Um, you yeah. know, it's not like we, I mean, there's still a lot of admin, you know, we have to, we do all our own safeguarding and uh, all our own risk assessment. And, you know, obviously we rent the building and things. But, and I think for, for me, perhaps, and maybe this is just a, a semi-unconscious bias, but I, I, I'm always a bit sniffy about systems. Um, <laughs> I, I'm always a bit um, suspicious of the, uh, this sort of factory thing of sort of pushing kids through a system where they will have to do the same curriculum and do the same things. And, and at the end, and, and all of that, of course, is based on an, an ideal of what the perfect child is or the perfect musician is. And so you, they're all going towards the same, the same trajectory to get to the same place, but we're at no point question. And it's so hard to dismantle a system that why just, why not just not construct one in the first place? Um, and then sort of respond to each child as they go. And, you know, one will evolve, I think, uh, you know one will emerge and then you kind of evolve with it rather than like taking a stab at what you think the right thing might be right yeah that's the whole like top down versus grassroots thing isn't it where yeah, you're very much participants grassroots. well yeah exactly i think we have a really you know amazing opportunity to do that um just because as we, we we're coming to the end of this this round of funding this three-year round of funding to sort of really um put our money where our mouth is and mm. say you know we, we we talk about being a uh, community integration charity and trying to be led by the community and I think it's really time to sort of say okay let's let's ask the community what they want and yeah. okay so the children are saying I want to learn tabla I don't want to learn the bloody violin well okay you know or I, I you know actually I, I kind of um I, I'd really like to learn this or I'd really like to learn it with this person I'd like to do it in a group I'd like to do it on my own I'd like to have it in my home and you know I think our job is now just to say yes 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 and every time you know even when it really pushes us to say yes and and just make that work and i, I yeah so it's it's an interesting time <laughs> yeah i think it'd be really interesting to have an organization where 
you are teaching so many different instruments as well because mm. presumably you'll get like a real gamut of of uh countries of origin in terms of like instruments and like styles and yeah i don't know like the end of term concert will be interesting yeah. <laughs> it'll be really varied <laughs> i think so i mean the first time round um I, sorry, I've been very unclear. The, the first three-year project we did was called Carol's Music Club. That was the one at St. St. John's and St. Chrysostom's. Yeah. And this this round, this last three-year round, has been called the Mango Scholarship Scheme um, because it's funded by the Mango Charitable Trust. Mm. Um, and Carol's Music Club, I mean, we had eight different instruments and we had eight different teachers and about 50 different kids. And it was really chaotic. But, um, uh, yeah, and I mean, it didn't work for its own reasons. I mean, we, I think it it worked in its own ways, but it was really troublesome and difficult. And so we kind of did a complete sort of 180 um, when we when we started the main ghost scheme, where there was only one instrument you could have. Um, and we only had two teachers. And actually, we only had 20 kids as opposed to, say, 50. Um, and, you know, that's really been whittled down um, over the last three years, because a lot of them weren't able to stay or they've moved. They moved on to different places and things. And yeah, I, I think what, what we kind of want to do this time around is also approach musicians within our community rather than just trying to source um, mm. university students, RNCM students to teach kids. Um, that actually, Manchester is a very kind of fertile place for, for, for musicians from different cultures. There's, there are an awful lot of um, really established musicians who maybe don't have a very strong online presence, but are real kind of stalwarts in their community. And what, one of the things we want to do is to pair those people up with children on our projects um, so that it may be that we have 20 teachers, but each teacher only has one child to look after. And that almost mentor figure is sort of highly compatible. And, uh, you know, we're trying to look for people who are kind of relevant to, to those children. So, you know, if they say, oh, I want to learn the zither, like, okay, let me look for a zither player. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, rather than just saying, well, actually we only offer, you can have piano or violin and that's it. And you've got to be, yeah. So, so, so I think, yeah, the, the Christmas concert will be interesting. Mm -hmm. um, ask me in six months. Yeah, yeah, it'll be very interesting to hear what happens in six months. Yeah, me yeah. too. I think, I mean, it, it seems like you've really addressed what I would have thought would be like one of the main sticking points of the original model of we're in the community, but then we're also taking like the classical Western instruments as like the main means of like what, what we're teaching as music, what music is. And yeah, really turned that around, like really taken that head on, which is really cool to see. This episode of Classical Music Now is supported by Dorico, the advanced music notation software from Steinberg. Dorico is designed to save you time, whether you are a composer or arranger, a teacher or student, working in music engraving and publishing, or producing music for media, it gives you the tools to produce beautiful scores faster than any other tool, so you can spend less time in front of your computer and more time doing what you love, making music. Dorico is available in three versions, including Dorico SE, which is completely free to download and use. Check it out today at steinberg.net slash Dorico, or use the link in the description to help out the podcast and show them that you came from us. Dorico were kind enough to sponsor six episodes of the podcast, and this is the last one of that. So I'd just like to give them an extra thank you for supporting us financially and essentially making this project net zero rather than a massive loss after I bought all my podcasting gear. So thank you very much to Dorico. I really appreciate it. And they've been massively helpful to the show. So big props to them. On with the show. When you said that the Carol Club didn't work so well at the beginning, 
what was it that that wasn't working there um yeah so so carol's music club um just give some context about that so it was named after walter carroll um mm. because there's, there's a plaque on um stockport road um one of those little blue ones um apparently walter carroll used to live there and he was also the organist at st john chrysostom's church all right so, i didn't know that yeah so it was it was very appropriate uh, and he's a manchester based composer and he used to mm. um he used to run various music education programs in the city including one that was pretty much identical to what we did, obviously on a much bigger scale than us. Um, so we called it Carol's Music Club. Um, um, I suppose the main things that didn't work, I mean, lots of things did work. We had a termly concert, you know, three times a year that was all, there was always 250 people plus that we never had a problem <laughs> selling out that ticket. Well, we never wow. sold tickets, but it was always, it was great, you know, it was yeah. very chaotic, um, <laughs> like really, really chaotic. It really wasn't, you know, kind of you sit down, everyone's quiet, like claps in the, in the right places kind of vibe. It was, it was intense, man. It was really <laughs> a lot. Um, and you know, there was face painting and, you know, we'd, we'd have, you know, kind of kids would sort of, um, we'd always have like a big canvas and stuff and the kids would come and paint on it as well. And, you know, there was a cake <laughs> sale and people would bring food and it was awesome. Sounds amazing. Yeah. So, you know, there were good things that came out of it and the kids definitely got a lot out of doing that things which didn't work. So I mentioned this before, but I think this kind of customer service, um, agreement, um, relationship is, is really unideal when you're, um, offering something like music to children, because firstly, you can't dictate the terms of the teaching. So, you know, you as a music teacher or as a music charity go in and you have certain ideals about what's best practice. And mm. for the most part, I feel they're very reasonable um, things that you ask for, like having a room and mm. not teaching in a corridor. I mean, you'll know this, Joe, because you teach in schools <laughs> as well, but you know, yeah. you're having to sort of say, it's, I really don't think it's appropriate for me to be teaching violin in the sports hall whilst you're also having a netball match um, and and if you're you know because they're the customer it's very hard to to say that to them or for mm. them to take it at least um and things like uh you know there, there's always very much i think it's a very capitalist thing um or, you know trying to constantly trying to quantify the value of the thing that you're paying for it, of course it's necessary with schools as well when they're on such tight budgets but uh, one of the things that was a real struggle was trying to put a limit on class sizes yeah and yeah. we've always prided ourselves on offering very small class sizes or you know in ideal situations one-to-one -one. um and i think you know when you look at other music hubs the way they make it work is that they do like whole class teaching i mean it just about works for violin but can you imagine whole class trombone well i can i teach it <laughs> oh do you really okay amazing. yeah i do i do whole class cornet and baritone yeah okay so you already know the horrors of um <laughs> i mean i don't know how on earth a child is supposed to hear themselves or what benefit that's supposed to to be for them um mm. especially when it's a very short amount of time and they've got half an hour to get their instrument out and stuff but it's very hard to sort of um tell a teacher that or tell a school that when they're paying for your service and they can point to other hubs or organizations. You know, I'm sure people do a fantastic job and met lots of music service teachers who, who do that group class teaching really, really well. But I mean, if you gave them the choice to choose, I think they would probably suggest an alternative that wasn't that. Hmm. Um, and, and I think when you have a situation where the school are paying for you to do something, you can't 
offer that alternative or say, I think the teaching would be better. I think the child would benefit more. I think this class would benefit more if we did it this way. Um, so I think that was the main problem for me. And also just because teachers were very, very, very overstretched. Um, they, they weren't able to, to put in the admin that was needed to make it work. And even the very basic things like remembering what day we were coming in and making sure that that classroom was free. Yeah, bringing in instruments. Yeah, yeah, bringing in instruments, all the usual stuff. You know, making sure the kids practice. I mean, that that's a whole other ball game, isn't it? But... Yeah, let's not go there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of my favorite stories is um, that the the so I'm an I'm an assistant with the guy who leads the classroom teaching. So I mean, that's one benefit is that you get two staff at least. Um, so it's not complete chaos. So I work for Salford Music Service, and they they loan the instruments out for the term. Well, for the year, in fact. And at the end, obviously, you've got that gut-wrenching moment where you need to get them all back in and you hope that they're all in one piece. Yeah. And one of them, they just couldn't locate. And it ended up in the window of a cash converters in Eccles. Oh, my God. And they really? saw it in the window and they're like, no, 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 that's mine. No, 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 no. <laughs> you can't sell my trombone. <laughs> that's, that's the music services. <laughs> that's amazing. And we once had, um, we have an OMF drum kit and that was stored at St. John's and they were having major renovations on the school and the building and we came back um, after, I don't know, half term or Easter holidays and we're like, where's the drum kit? Um, not because we wanted it back, just we needed to have a lesson and they'd left mm. it on the building site and we were like, you can't do that. <laughs> you have to, you know, you, you know, but it was, yeah, you, you don't have a lot of control when you work with schools It's and it's tricky because, um, yeah, it's a delicate situation, I think. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So it's always like a, like you say, it's a partnership, isn't it? So there's a, yeah. there's a kind of give and take. Um, but you you might not always want to give anything. <laughs> well, it's it's stress building. I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, all of these partnerships mm. and things are just about people, aren't they? And there's no amount of business school or I, I've never been to business school. I've never done any kind of management course. But you know, one of the things that I mean, I I started the OMF when I was 21. Um, so I basically I knew. Sh <laughs> like I mean, I'm probably in the same situation now but um if there's one thing that I can kind of take away from all of those early experiences is that you you have to get people to trust you and you can only really do that by well number one turning up mm -hmm. um and secondly um making good on what you say you're going to do it's really that's really all there is to it and then you keep doing that and if you do it for long enough um i think the receptionist starts to be a little bit nicer yeah. um the, the head teacher is more willing to kind of see you a bit more regularly um the class mm. teachers see that you're you're here you, you know you're, you're sticking around the kids see you're going to stick around the parents start to soften a little bit um and i think that's that's it really um mm. all that that partnership stuff and it, yeah it, it's it's all kind of about buy-in and give and take and yeah and i suppose we're a very young charity. We're only six years old, but it's taken us six years to build that trust up with our community and for for them to be like, okay, yeah, they're, they're still here. You know, yeah. Joe's not changed her phone number. We can still call her up and she'll <laughs> you know, sort this out for us. Um, yeah. You know your phone numbers on your Facebook page, right? Yeah, I do. Yeah, that's pretty brave. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, the, my, my phone number's on the Charity Commission website. I mean, for the plain reason mm. so that people in Longsight can call me. <laughs> <laughs> and ask me where their child's violin is yeah or whatever it yeah. is they, they want to ask for yeah i know i know it's, it's really unideal one day i'll have a work phone one day so it's on my it's on my arts council wish list um <laughs> yeah 
50 pounds for spare phone yeah <laughs> is that one of the reasons you're you're interested in getting like a physical space then so that you can manage all of that building stuff um yeah i think it's, it's a bit sort of counter to what's going on now but everything having been online and remote um i mean okay so there's two there's two reasons um we've worked remotely out of necessity for six years mm. because it's very expensive i mean not having a uh, building saved us during COVID um, because we didn't have any overheads. Um, mm. It just it meant that we could, you know, any money that we were going to, that as I say, so all the all the lessons that that got cancelled, we didn't lose that money. Um, we just pulled that back in, um, mm. and we didn't have anything going out. So so that was really a saving grace. So it feels very sort of. Um, counterintuitive to then say I know the first thing we're going to do is we're going to get ourselves a building and sort of put all of that liability on us but actually one of the things that we're realizing is that it's really important to be kind of in a sort of physical heart of the place that you're working and to have a place for people to gather people need to gather um you know during COVID I mean you gather on Zoom and stuff I mean it does a similar thing it's not the same thing but people need somewhere they can go to and feel like it's theirs um the building that we're looking at isn't just going to be occupied by us or be occupied by other people but if it's a space that they kind of go to for there's going to be like a south asian cinema club cool and uh, yeah exactly and there's going to be a cafe and there's going to be like a cricket club um and so you're building a community center essentially well the community center is already there and we're just going to be one of the people who live in the community center and that community center doesn't belong to us it doesn't belong to 422 it really belongs to the people who live there and it's really important to us that we're present there whilst that that's happening and mm. that the, that community are coming and knocking on our office and that there is someone who can i think the other thing is that um because you know language barriers various things sometimes it is easier for people to come and see you in person explain something in person than it is for them there's something very anonymous and um not very inclusive about emails and mm. and phone call as well if you're if you struggle with english it's much better if you can go in person yeah, and some, like, gestures and well you know if you, you come in and you know if, you, if a lot of the children translate for their parents mm. um so very often what happens is when we're in school is that you know Marion will bring made up name by the way but Marion will bring mum along and sort of say uh, my mum's got a question for you mum will ask the question and then you know Marion will translate into you know Farsi or Odi whatever it is and then I'll go oh yeah yeah well you know this and this and this and then she'll translate it back to mum and and mm. you, you can't really do that by email um <laughs> yeah so it I takes think a long time <laughs> yeah people need to see you in their community they need to see that you're there yeah it's that trust thing isn't it it's like oh you're a real person who's bothered to come from wherever you live to where I am and yeah, yeah, trust, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, and for us, I mean, the, the sort of um, kind of the most important learning point I've had this year, probably in the last six months, is that I discovered Slunglow Theatre in Leeds. Oh, yeah. Do yeah. you know about them? Yeah, George's, I don't know if she's worked for them, but she's definitely like talked to them and um, yeah, submitted a few scripts to, to their theatre company. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, they are like my cultural heroes. I have <laughs> like every like every kudo that i can give to alan lane i will give to alan lane who's their, their director and i mean if you don't know about them they um they they turned the um the oldest working men's club in the uk it's called the holbeck um mm. into their theater and what they did was they did that by uh coming to an agreement with the working men's club that they would manage it and you know clear up all the debt and the building would still belong to 
um, the members of the club. It's basically a cooperative, but Slumlow would manage the building and also put on theatre there. And um, and during the pandemic, they then, because obviously there was no theatre and there were no plays, they became a food bank. Um, and then Leeds City Council, they became the area ward lead for social referrals. And they've done something crazy, like 20,000 social referrals since the beginning of COVID. And that includes everything from um, doing people's washing, taking their bins out, prescriptions, mm-hmm. um, you know, you name it, they'll do it. And they say yes to absolutely everything. And it's really interesting. They, they made a documentary about originally moving into the Holbeck. Um, mm. And, you know, it wasn't easy. People didn't want them there. They, yeah. they were like, you know, we want to watch football on a <laughs> on a Thursday and you're getting in the way of... Well, they didn't because actually they, they kind of kept everything exactly the same. It's written into their contract that they're not allowed to change the carpets and um, and stuff. But, you know, people were very, very suspicious. You know, you, you're know, you not from here. You're not one of us. We don't want mm. theatre. We want, you know, our, you know, you want this to be a sports bar and to do, do whatever it's always done. And, um, yeah, and, and that trust-building thing, again has meant that they've been able to do a lot of good in their community, but they've only done it by listening mm. rather than that top-down thing of we're going to do theatre in Holbeck. It's been all about, well, what do you want to do? And he, Alan's just amazing at that. He, we, I've been really lucky. I, I actually asked him if I could have a chat with him and get some advice. And, you know, he's as good as his word. You know, he says, you know, he his, he really does say yes. <laughs> um, and he's just fantastic, really. And I, I really kind of feel that that's missing that from the heart of a lot of kind of arts organizations that working with the community to, you know, with let's create and everything. So the arts councils and a new strategy for the next 10 years, a lot of that's about making art, which is inclusive and relevant. Mm. Um, and not just sort of saying, you know, Mozart forever or whatever it is and saying, if you don't like it, you're a pleb, you know, the, the conversation's changing now. Um, and they want people to, to hold the space um and and to to kind of have a real voice and saying what they feel art is and and why why they feel it's art and um i I kind of feel that we have a really powerful opportunity to be a part of that conversation um but we can only do that if we're if we're really really listening Mm. and not just coming in with you know guns are blazing you know this is culture take part yeah and it it takes time as well doesn't it if you're Mm. If you're coming in with your idea, you can think about that in all the, you know, rent free, as it were, like in all the time you're not working, you kind of end up like thinking, oh, I could do that or, you know, this, this, that and the other, because it's your idea. Whereas if the only time that you're actually really working on the project is when you're talking to people from that community, like the lead in time just grows so much. Mm -hmm. I, I think I read that it was two years that you worked on making Manchester before it even started. Is that right? Yeah. No. Yeah. What were you doing in those two years? um let's see uh is that like research or yeah it takes time man to get to know people so 2017 i don't mean in that like a like a what were you doing no no absolutely (laughs) i mean all good projects have a decent i mean i'm i'm all about the process i mean i i live for the process i'm really not interested in outcomes (laughs) yeah Mm -hmm. i'm I'm really you're you're the least ideal person to fund i kind of really keen on the r d bit and then what happens at the end is just you know what will be will be but in 2017 we won the community integration awards it's a national award um for various people who were doing things which were going to encourage different communities to integrate with one another um and we won the grassroots champion award um Hmm. and the other the winner of the research impact award um was a group called our migration story um who were based at the university of manchester and is headed by professor claire alexander 
um, in the sociology department and the Runnymede Trusts, who are the, uh, they're a race relations think tank in London. Um, and uh, seeing as we were both in Manchester, it made sense to have a chat. And we kind of cooked up this slightly crazy idea to go into one of the schools. And so Claire's a sort of oral history specialist um, and oral history is what it says on the tin. It's kind of about getting away from this idea of kings and queens and um, Samuel Pepys writing down a sort of glorious history of England and saying that like a podcast is a historical artifact, isn't it? Uh, you know, yeah, actually, yeah. A, so is a WhatsApp message, so is lots of other things. Um, and, and oral history is about getting people to talk about what it is that happened to them and then mm. using that as a kind of historical document. So we, we went into this school and I mean, it took a long time to sort of find a school that was appropriate and to set it up in the right way and sort of set our parameters up. You know, there's a lot of questions that you got to ask when you do something like that. What happens if we wanted to basically get a bunch of kids who would have an interesting migration story to tell us about their families? Um, and then to sort of write some music and put on like a show about it. Um, and the first round of funding came from the university and from the Runnymede Trust. Um, Claire organized all of that. And then the second round of funding, that was uh, that was the OMF. So we then applied to the Arts Council after that first year of work and said, okay, we've done all this work now, please could we have the sort of money to just push it over the finish line, finishing line and get all these great artists and musicians and creative people together to sort of make, make a sort of, uh, standalone performance based on all the stuff that we've collected. But, you know, along the way, you've got to ask yourself a lot, a lot of questions. So the nitty gritty starts to become quite important. So what happens if you have, um, you know, a couple of people um, or even quite a lot of people in your cohort who don't have a migration story? So what do they do? Mm. There's a lots of what's and ifs and um, what, you know, what does that historical document look like? How long does it have to be? How, what do they need to include in that? Um, do we have to anonymize that? You know, what, who stores it afterwards? Who does that belong to? Does it belong to them? Does it belong to us? It, who do we need to ask for permission to then make that into a show? Um, it's all of these questions. And then, of course, you know, doing the work itself. Um, okay, we've got 60 stories, but we've got one hour. Um, like how do we make that into some sort of coherent narrative that we can tell how much is this even music I mean you know it's basically a is this is it a play um, mm -hmm. is it is it a theater piece is it just a lot of things that you need to before you can even begin to deliver on a project all these like really important questions that need to be asked to make sure that the roadmap is like of the highest integrity and, and of the highest sort of artistic quality as well, because I mean, that's what matters at the end of the day, isn't it? Is that what people come and see the show um, and that they like it and then they talk about it and that the message resonates. And um, so so that's why it took two years. <laughs> and you know, this is a very short lead in time, you know, a lot of the stuff that, you know, you see on Netflix now has taken five or six years to, hmm. <laughs> and a lot of stopping and starting. I, I thought we did that pretty swiftly, actually. <laughs> yeah, it's and, and there's like the whole thing about, well, if we're taking these stories, but then we're using professional like dancers and musicians to interpret it, then who owns it? You know, who's, because if, if it's not coming out of their mouth, is it still their story you know and if it's a musical piece or a dance piece 
that the kind of the rate at which you can convey words and meaning is kind of slowed down significantly. <laughs> yes, yeah, well, there's that as well, isn't there? I mean, I think we had a really good workaround for that. So it was Emma Doherty's idea. Um, so she was our director. I'm sure you know her from from the uni. Yeah, yeah. Um, she she had an extremely clever workaround where the kids did say everything themselves, but they didn't have to be in rehearsal. So we went in and we recorded all of them reading mm. their stories, but they didn't read their own. They read somebody else's right yeah so yeah, the way we did that was we just got the register and you know excel spreadsheet you've got the net you've got the names and then you've got the story and then we just sort of dislocated them by one <laughs> so that, that's interesting yeah so they all kind of read the person below their name if that makes sense mm. and so all 60 stories were told by all 60 children just not their own and not necessarily in the order because they were chopped up and then glued back together by um by Haley Savista who's another University of Manchester composer um and mm. we sort of structured it into we kind of categorized them into themes so the things that they said rather than having them kind of you know being told chronologically mm. 60 times and that was for anonymizing. <laughs> Got another Chrysostomus in my mouth. That was for anonymizing purposes, was it? No, it wasn't. It was just to make okay. make the whole thing cohesive and coherent, and mm. to make them one unit, like one group of people with one story that sort of held with common themes. I mean, they had sixty really unique stories, but they had a lot of similarities um, in them. Well, you can imagine uh, the sort of reasons for leaving or experiences when they arrived. A lot of them have different experiences too, but you know, there's a lot of commonalities you can draw out of that. And what we wanted to say was this is this this group of stories kind of represents this idea um, in this way, and these are the things that they have in common. But these are the things which are also different. Yeah, really cool. So it seems we're coming to the end of the time. Where are you hoping to take Olympias next? So we've got a really exciting project that we're doing next year i think it's crossed anyway I, I pressed submit on grantium today so um you, you can quote me in 16 weeks um <laughs> i'll but, touch uh, lots of wood yes please i'm touching all the wood i don't think it's actually i don't think there's any actual real wood in my house but yeah exactly just touch a pencil and hope for the best um but um so i mentioned that during the lockdown we we, we no i didn't mention that sorry I, we did a project in the lockdown called mapping migrant voices we interviewed 60 musicians from from different cultures and put mm. them all on an interactive map of Greater Manchester. It was one of our online projects. But next year, we want to bring all of those 60 people in person. Like together in the same room? In the same room oh, cool. for a year. So, um, and then we want to hold a festival at the end of the year. So in August next year, where they put on all the work that they made together over the year. And also a big street parade in Longsight around the hub that we're going to be mm. at. And, um, yeah, it's, it's really kind of a exciting project because, you know, a lot of the questions that you, you're asked in these funding applications is what have you programmed and um, what's it going to look like? And we're like, we don't know. <laughs> we don't know. It's, it's not happened yet because, you know, we, we're basically, you know, they've not been in a room together yet. But, you know, if you give us the money, you'll soon find out. So, um, so, so that's really, you know, I've got my fingers crossed for that. And there's a lot of different strands to that, that project. So we have devising days for artists and devising days for the community led by artists and then lots of school workshops and we've uh, put in for lots of mentoring for people within the group and making educational resources and then sort of i think the biggest part of that project which is what we're hoping kind of a bit new um is that we put in for 12 commissions like pots of money that people can apply to um to us for 
from that cohort of those people who've been coming to all of those events. And they make, they, they make what they want to make. The only kind of rule is that they have to collaborate with someone else in the group. Um, oh, cool. So, so they basically do whatever they want to do. And we just facilitate. We sit back and say, you know, it's up to you. You, you do what you like. We're just mm. here to sort of help you get there. And, and then we'll see what happens. So, so that's, that's the plan. I mean, in the long term, um, you know, we're kind of working up to, we've, because we've left schools now as well, the kind of education stuff we're doing, we want to have at least 30 kids having um, lessons next year um, and work with them, you know, for at least three years, if not five. I mean, it depends mm. how old they are and how long they want to stick out with us, but to have a cohort of at least 30 and to increase that every year, you know, so 30, 60, 90, sort of work our way up. And um, yeah, and uh, you know, in the meantime, it's just about, we talked about this a lot already, but you know, trust building, being present, turning up. Um, I think one of the big changes for next year as well is we're going to start doing food. That sounds crazy, but, nice. um, but <laughs> is, I think that for too long, we've kind of said, you know, no, you can have some stale McVitie's biscuits and a, a cold <laughs> cup of tea and we're not doing that anymore, you know. So I'd, I'd like next year to have, you know, regular iftars during Ramadan and I'd like us to, to you know, Christmas concert. Why not stay and have dinner with us, uh, mm. you know, and for people to feel, as I said, like they're holding the space. Um, and it's not just about that. Like, we care more than just that the kids are having music lessons. It's about something bigger than, um, <laughs> I don't know, going to a concert. We're doing something more with it, but you're doing it through music. Yeah. No, the world's best incentive. <laughs> I'm biased, but. <laughs> I mean, you have a cookbook, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, that whole thing. Well, it's not my cookbook, and it's not—it's not really. I don't know if you can really call it a cookbook. It's just sort of a big, like, bit of a mess around. <laughs> with oh, mate, I found so. it really cool. <laughs> Did you? Oh, thanks. Yeah. appreciate that. <laughs> thanks to Joe for taking the time to talk to me on the podcast. It was a really nice chat, and we had a really nice chat afterwards as well. Actually, we spent a, a good another half hour to an hour talking. So maybe I'll release that as a bonus episode, but we'll see. We'll see. In terms of the podcast coming up later is not a lot. The podcast is going on a hiatus for, well, I don't know how long. Um, no Dice as a whole is actually going on a hiatus. Um, it's been an amazing experience doing all the No Dice stuff that I've done over the last five and a bit years. Um, but it's very time consuming, so I'm just taking a bit of time to make my own music again, rather than spending all my life planning the next podcast, planning who's doing Piece of the Month and doing uh, lots of lots of admin basically that comes with running an organization you can see why someone like adam from manchester collective ended up giving up the playing and going straight to admin and make that his main concern rather than having to juggle things anyway horses for courses i'll see you around bye, bye.